Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello there, movie truthers. It's Michael Leader here, back once again with one of these remotely recorded lockdown specials of Truth and Movies. Today, we're actually talking about a new release for a change. Uh, Just in the couple of weeks before cinemas reopen again in the UK, there are still a couple of films going straight to digital that we wanted to shout out. And this week is actually the current cover film of Little White Lies. It is Minari. And talking about that film with me is Hannah Woodhead. Hannah, welcome to the show. I feel every time you're on the show recently, I need to ask where in the country you are and how the cat is doing. <laughs> um, I'm currently in London uh, at my house and um, Margot is doing great. She's just had her lunch, so she's having a nap. Um, if there's any like bells in the background, it'll be Margot, just for listeners. Because I know that on, I think on the Christmas episode, there was like the sound of like bells in the background and it, it wasn't like a seasonal effect we added. It was just my cat like running around the, in the background. So yeah, if anyone hears that. Um, but it, I'm glad you asked because I'm actually going up north again next week for a few weeks to uh, help out with family stuff. Mm-hmm. So I feel like the only person in the UK who's getting a change of scenery at the moment, even if it's just like moving from my house to my mum's sofa. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's... It, pretty nice to see the countryside and help out the family amid all this uh, coronavirus nonsense which hopefully we're hopefully fingers crossed mm-hmm. toes crossed Thing. about to get through fingers crossed <laughs> we'll have to record another episode with you up there to make sure that we've always alternated between <laughs> you know, your flat and your, your family home uh, i was thinking this must be like coming up to a year of these now i can't remember when we did the first one but it would have been in March. So we started off with those sort of thematic episodes where we were talking about the future of cinema. These late night long chats that we had with Adam going through his vinyl collection. We also had Jason Wood <laughs> talking about the, the situation in Manchester with home. Gosh, that feels like so long ago, doesn't it? And we've tried to adapt and try to create normal episodes like we're doing today. but we're also joined hannah by a new guest to truth and movies i'd like to welcome katie go katie thank you for joining us today would you mind just uh, telling our listeners who you are what you do where they might have read your stuff before sure thank you very much for having me i am a first time caller long time listener of the podcast um yeah, my name's Kitty. I'm a freelance film critic and journalist. Um, you might have read some of my stuff in um, Little White Lies or ID or Vice or Dazed. And yeah, I think the last thing I did for Little White Lies was a review in the current Minari issue. 
that is um, yeah, a review of The World to Come, which mm. is a film that I enjoyed very much, actually. Mm-hmm. Terrific. And how's lockdown been for you? How's the last year been? You're based up in Scotland, right? I am, but I'm calling from Belfast, actually, in Ireland. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm a bit like Hannah. I've been moving around a lot. So normally I'm in Edinburgh, but I'm at my parents' place right now because I got trapped after Christmas. But now we're going to escape from our locked down lives and go to 1980s America to discuss this new release, Buzzy Award-nominated release, Minari. The Trial of the Chicago 7 is nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Picture. You know why you're on trial here? Three BAFTA nominations, including Best Film and Golden Globe winner for Best Screenplay. This is what revolution looks like, cultural revolution. Deadline calls it the best film of the year. So how do you overthrow your government peacefully? In this country, we do it every four years. The Trial of the Chicago 7, only on Netflix. Now let's kick off, as I used to, with new release segments with a bit of a synopsis. It's going way back when. So, Minari. A tender and sweeping story about what roots us, Minari follows a Korean-American family that moves to an Arkansas farm in search of their own American dream. The family home changes completely with the arrival of their sly, foul-mouthed but incredibly loving grandmother. Amidst the instability and challenges of this new life in the rugged Ozarks, Minari shows the undeniable resilience of family and what really makes a home. So, Minari's been a long time coming, it seems. It's finally out, 2nd of April in the UK. You can watch this at home at minari.film. But the buzz, the hype train has been rolling for nearly 18 months. It's up for six Oscars. It won the Grand Jury Prize and the Dramatic Audience Award at Sundance last year. And who was there in that first audience watching it at Sundance <laughs> 2020 but Hannah Woodhead. Hannah, so... Minari is this film that has become such a juggernaut in terms of the buzz and the hype and the discussion, but what was it like? What was your expectation going into watching it for the first time? Yeah, I I think with these um, films that start off at a festival, there's always that like, well, I knew right from the start it was going to go all the way. And, you know, people that were at the first screening of like Joker and Parasite and things. Actually, I was at the first screening of Parasite. But I think even then, like... I, I maybe I'm just not very good at predicting these things, but I had no idea it would kind of um, have the um, momentum it's gained, and I'm very very grateful that it has, and very happy that it has because it it's so richly deserved. But there's always a worry when you watch a film at a festival that it is just going to kind of disappear into obscurity, especially somewhere like Sundance where there's so many films and all kind of competing for attention and. This one didn't really, I mean, I didn't really have like a big starry cast. It obviously had Stephen Yeun, but it wasn't, you know, something that I think everyone was super, super hyped for. It was kind of like, okay, this sounds interesting. Obviously, Lee Isaac Chung isn't a first time filmmaker. He's been making films for a long time. This is his fifth feature. Um, But really like his breakout in terms of... um, I think he would he would agree that it's you know unprecedented <laughs> and um, yeah it was it was a very unexpected shock to to watch this film and have the reaction I did so I was in the premiere screening at the library theatre in uh, Sundance which is actually just they have a library for the town and uh, during Sundance there's like a screening room and it's very cozy and very cute they make really good biscuits and. Um, 
I was sat there <laughs> about four rows from the front and I think I started crying maybe 10 minutes in and just didn't stop the whole time. I was like a completely like uplifted and devastated in equal measure, I will say. And it didn't really help that like I mentioned this in my, in my first look review, maybe I think at the festival, but my grandma was diagnosed with cancer like two weeks before I went to the festival. So watching this film was like, oh my God, all my like feelings about family and my grandparents are really like, you know, being kind of brought up right now. And yeah, it was a very cathartic experience. And then to kind of watch this past uh, year and a bit now has been really, um, really joyful for me as like someone who came out of that screening thinking, I hope everyone loves this as much as I do to then like watch this kind of ripple around the world as more people see it and more people love it. It's, it's been really nice. It's been like the greatest kind of joy as a critic, I think, is when you discover something and then watch other people kind of discover it and get to like have those conversations and recommend it to people. So, yeah, I feel very like I've been really enjoying watching the, uh, the little Minari train travel around. We should say that Sundance is a festival that occurs at high altitude, so sometimes <laughs> the hype that when you're coming out of those screenings, you're already quite high on the lack of oxygen. So sometimes <laughs> when that when those films do come out down the line, we're like, what were they thinking? <laughs> but yeah, yeah. <laughs> thankfully, this seems to be different. Katie, you're 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 sort of seeing it on a tight similar timeline to me. Maybe months later after the hype was running, what was it like when you came to watch it? Yeah, it was interesting because I saw the hype come out at Sundance, and I kind of had you know heard the synopsis saw some of the first reviews and I just knew like oh yeah this is gonna absolutely destroy me um and then the trailer came out and I said yes it is absolutely gonna destroy me confirmed and then yeah I finally watched it and it did destroy me so you know it's nice to be proven right for once by critics um but yeah it was um really interesting to sort of see it build I saw it around um yeah maybe September October last year so it you know it had the hype was just sort of building and it had been picked up by its distributors and it was kind of, you know, the Oscars were coming sort of feeling about it. But yeah, I was absolutely blown away by it. Um, I, on so many levels, I found it so impressive mm. in terms of a craft level, the story itself, the acting, how it kind of felt like all of these perfect things have been brought together and created this really impressive film that is so confident, I think. And it's doing so much in terms of its the emotions it's playing with it never feels like it's manipulating you but it's you know it's you know it knows what it's doing it's pulling at your heartstrings mm. but in a way that feels very genuine and lovely it's a really fascinating film because i've been thinking about this when i've been talking about it recommending it to people it, you just see the poster image of a lad in the long grass with a nice kind of sunny background and it's quite a hard one to really get a handle on because unlike many of the Oscar Beatty Awards contention films, it doesn't have that central hook or dilemma or trauma at the centre of it. It's quite a poetic film, but as Lee Isaac Chung talks about drawing so much from his own upbringing and his autobiography, yet it's not a sort of memoir um, overcoming the odds kind of underdog story either. So if, can we home in on what is the heart of Minari when we're trying to recommend it to somebody? Maybe, Katie, when it destroyed you, what was it that was destroying you? <laughs> Many different things. <laughs> um, I think that 
It's interesting you bring up the poster, because I mm. think on that poster, a big white text in the middle of it says, this is a universal story or something like that. This is, you know, a story for everyone, which is obviously a huge marketing ploy um, by the distributors. But I think that, I mean, it's universal in terms of it's, you know, they're humans acting and we all relate as humans to other humans. But I think it's a very specific story and that's why it's so good. It's so specifically a story about immigration and specifically in that Korean immigration and it's a Korean American story and I think that um yeah there's been a lot about how it's you know it's not focusing in too much on the sort of the immigrant experience it's you know doing all these other things which it is but I think that the specifics are what really makes it work there's some really beautiful moments in it you know there's a there's a moment when um Monica the mother in the film she um, her her mother comes, the grandmother, Sunja, and she brings, you know, chili powder and anchovies, which you can't get in America in the 80s, and she just starts to cry, and it's such a beautiful moment that anyone can relate to who has family overseas. But also, it's very, you know, specific about her experience and about her experience as a Korean woman in America in a time when, you know, she was very cut off from everyone else. And I think that those specifics are really what gives the film so much of its heart and so much of its drive. And I think that in terms of, you know, why we would recommend a film like this, I think that you don't get that a lot in terms of big Oscar films. You don't really get films that are so careful, so carefully crafted. It's so obviously autobiographical, I think, and drawing on the Isaac Chung's experience. But it doesn't feel overly sentimental, I would say, as well. And it doesn't feel overly nostalgic. I would say it's more yeah retrospective mm. and it's very um yeah it considers a lot of different things yeah for me it's it is that it's almost an interlocking you, you talk very well there about the specificity of it of the emotions and the experience but it does work on these multiple levels for me these interlocking levels first of all just the i don't want to say novelty but the uniqueness of the story when we are used to a certain kind of immigrant story coming from america usually they're urban from the one of the coasts this is a rural story you know they're trying to start you know start up a farm and also the setting of the early 1980s is not necessarily the era we associate with this sort of story but then there's the poetic level and Lee Isaac Chung spoke about this in interviews Hannah I know you've interviewed him so maybe he said some of this to you about how he'd made a few films and felt like he'd sort of not hit a brick wall but come to a point where he had to change up how he worked so and wrote down all these memories you know 80 memories or something from his upbringing that he wanted to turn into a put into a film put on screen so there is that specificity but almost as a byproduct there is this poetic level so there's of course the title minari which is about a plant that almost survives and thrives in the worst um, circumstances where no other plants do, but also enriches the soil in the way that, in, in, in the process of growing within it, which is almost a perfect, positive, optimistic um, metaphor for immigration and what diverse communities can bring to a country. And the film has so many of those moments where you can see the specific, but then also this poetic level 
And it's all centred around this family. Hannah, you interviewed Lee Isaac Chung and the cast members too. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I mean, I was lucky enough to speak to Lee and uh, Stephen Yun and uh, Alan Kim, who were all so generous and insightful and so kind of excited to talk about the film. And, um, you know, obviously when you interview someone about their work, they're usually going to be kind of excited. But I think it, it felt especially nice to do so kind of this was in it was would have been just before Christmas so I think it was a really sort of it was the period where I guess everyone realized kind of this film is probably going to go all the way um I think there's always a bit of Sundance is so early in the year it takes a lot for a film to be able to maintain that momentum and kind of get all the way to the Oscars it doesn't happen that often um I think maybe like Get Out and Call Me By Your Name are the only two like kind of recent examples I can think of. Um, and now, obviously, the film stands like quite a good chance of picking up a number of awards. So I would very much hope so. Anyway, um, but yeah, speaking to them was a really like delightful experience, especially um, talking to Lee about the film and kind of where it came from. Because I think there's always such a narrative in Hollywood around like filmmaking that is like. They're always looking for the kind of the next hot young thing. And um, there's a sort of trajectory now that we all joke about where, you know, you make your debut feature and it's like a breakout indie film that maybe gets a Sundance Grand Jury Prize and then you go and make a Marvel movie. <laughs> and um, it was kind of refreshing to hear from this guy who's been making films for a number of decades now. He's um, taught film uh, kind of all around the world. He worked in uh, Rwanda with his wife for a, a long time. And this is this was kind of his make or break moment where he decided if he couldn't do filmmaking forever, then he was going to make a film that meant the most to him. And obviously that was about his family and just kind of hearing someone talk about the experience of like laying everything out on the page and then, you know, bringing that to the screen. You you feel very privileged because it's a hard thing to do. It's, you know, it's hard to, open yourself up to people in that way and kind of um, wait for their reactions. You know, what if they hate it? What if they basically say your whole life is garbage, you know? So, you know, kind of talking to him about that was really interesting. But also his reactions from his family about the film were fascinating because he said there were certain things he put into the film just as like, you know, kind of fictional flourishes and his family would come back and say, oh yeah, I remember that. He's like... no you don't because it didn't happen (laughs) which I thought was it was really funny and also kind of says something about like the way memory is I think that um there are things you kind of invent just to like make sense of your past a lot of the time especially when your family's kind of been through um traumatic experiences and I think watching the film there is kind of evidence that it wasn't all you know, plain sailing. It wasn't this great American uh, American dream style situation where they went out to Arkansas and made a made a wonderful farm with um, inherent prosperity. I think the the thing that I love so much about the film is that it is there's so much kind of um, nuance between the good things and the bad things that exist in this uh, new life they forge for themselves and. Talking to Stephen Yen as well was he was he talked a lot about how um, it's not just kind of a story of immigrants from Korea kind of coming to America to make a new life, but also that idea of moving from the the big city and the coast to the rural life and kind of all the little like um, 
discrepancies that you find. It's something that his family did as well when they moved. Um, I think they moved from the opposite way. So it was from like Canada to, uh, I want to say Michigan. I think, I think that he's from Detroit. <laughs> and um, he said, you know, it's another kind of culture shock. And I think we see that in the film as well. You know, the, the kids especially um, seem kind of a, a little bit dumbfounded by this like strange rural community they've been forced into. And um, I love the bit where David goes over to his friend's house and his, <laughs> his, his, little, his little friend is like showing his, him all his like dad's like guns or something that he's showing him. And it's like, it's just like, it, it's so clearly far removed from like his, from David's experience and David's life. And the other great scene that has divided people, I know that some people really didn't like this was um, with um, Paul, who's kind of this uh, handyman on the farm and, kind of like imposes himself on the family but in a you know in a sort of sweet way and he's um one day they're driving back from uh church the family and they see paul on the side of the road wheeling this like giant wooden cross on his back and it's a very literal kind of like everyone's got their cross to bear <laughs> moment but i was talking to uh, lee about this and he said yeah that's completely true that there was there was a guy who did that in my hometown mm. uh he was really nice <laughs> we all we all knew every uh, every sunday he'd be out there wheeling his giant cross around um so i think it's it's interesting like watching a film based on someone's experience and kind of wondering yourself how much is true and how much is uh, kind of manufactured for the screen and then obviously doing this interviews I was like oh wow like the things that I kind of thought that there's no way that can be true is uh, completely 100% genuine mm. and I think I just it's so like Katie said you know getting kind of uh, something that's so specific to someone's experience is so rare with awards films i think we're so used to seeing this very glossy very um slick world in the kind of the things that usually get awards and awards buzz but this does feel like there is something kind of a little bit rough hewn about it that i really like it feels so authentic and so um affectionate mm -hmm. it's you know it's everything is so kind of beautifully realized i think it's a very it it would be hard for me to talk about my family with as much nuance as um, Lee Isaac Chung does. I think he he articulates kind of his parents as human beings so beautifully. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have 
and Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I think nuance is the word in case you use that as well. The tone of this is quite unique. You mentioned the uh, the other the other characters in their orbit like um Paul and the their view of the little town or at least the film's view of the little town at times makes me think of almost a lightly Coen Brothers-esque small town America. <laughs> they're, they're ever so slightly caricatured but in a loving way. Uh, but then that also speaks to the tone of the film in the way that both on the Festival Art House and the Oscar bait ends of the spectrum, this story could be pushed towards peril or conflict or trauma. Lee Isaac Chung makes that really interesting decision to to almost keep that stuff to the sides. I think he says in interviews that when he was a kid, like he's almost his insert character here would be David, the boy. He just was just surviving on a daily basis, not to be embarrassed, you know, by his by his grandma <laughs> or whatever. He wasn't thinking about it on the level that if we compared this with something like a small axe series, which is very much a political, big political series of films. And now, Katie, what did you make of that decision and what that brought to the film and made it different, made it better? Yeah, it's interesting. I think that in terms of the perspective, I think that's a really interesting um, balancing act because, yeah, it's autobiographical and he's basically you know, um, David's point of view for a lot of it, but then the point of view changes a lot. It changes to um, Jacob's as well. And I think he's, Lee Isaac Chung has talked a lot about how, as he's gotten older, as he's had his own children, that he understands his parents better and he understands what the character of Jacob is doing, who would have been his sort of, you know, father figure. And I think that the film maybe is able to balance so much because it's balancing perspective in such a... Yeah, I mean, I feel like we keep saying nuance, but it really is. It's such a testament to how good the filmmaking is, I think, and the writing is, is that, yeah, there's he's balancing these perspectives. He's balancing not only um, a child's perspective and an adult's perspective, but then also a grandmother's perspective. Mm-hmm. He's balancing a foreign perspective on America and then, you know, also an American's perspective on these foreigners who have come in. You see that with, you know, some of the American characters too. And then also balancing the children are... I think Korean American children, the parents are Korean immigrants, which is also very different sort of, you know, strife. And I think that the film is so successful because all these competing tensions, they, it's why the film feels so textured, I think, as well as, you know, the beautiful cinematography and the music, which is incredible as well, that the film feels, I think, authentic in that way, not just because it has inspired by the director's true life story on it, but also because it doesn't feel whitewashed in any way in terms of, you know, it doesn't feel sanitized in any way. It feels quite messy, which I think, yeah, some people might not like as much. Maybe I've seen some criticism of the film that it, 
Um, it doesn't, you know, satisfy people in some ways, which I think is quite interesting. Mm. Um, it doesn't maybe have that the arc for some people, which I think, yeah, I find that completely opposite. I think it's a really wonderfully structured film in terms of it's such a slow build and then there is this huge, you know, set piece at the end that kind of this huge moment of catharsis for the characters and the audience. So, yeah, I think that, yeah, like I was saying, all of these competing things do bring a real sense of authenticity to it. It's also, because of all of those balanced perspectives, probably more of an ensemble movie than some people may realise. And so we could really take our pick about any of the actors if we want to start <laughs> throwing praise in their direction. <laughs> so, Katie, who do you want to start with out of the cast? <laughs> All right. My MVP of Minari today is um, Han Yi Ri, I think. Right. He plays Monica, um, the mother and wife. Um, yeah, she's not getting enough <laughs> love, I don't think, from people. She is absolutely the, you know, heart of this family in a lot of ways. She grinds it. She brings, you know, so much love to the to the film I think you know she's dealing with her husband's you know kind of crazy dream of creating this farm on this land that you know the previous owner killed himself because he couldn't um make it work um so she's having to deal with that and the move to this place she doesn't know anyone she's isolated from everyone she's having to look after her son David who has a heart murmur um and she's just kind of yeah so there's a lot going on for her but I think that Han Yuri's performance is really, really powerful and really, really, yeah, I think it's it's interesting. The I don't want to give any spoilers, so I find it quite difficult to talk about it, but the, the final big sort of climax of the film and you see her finally break and it's such a beautiful moment because it's not Jacob who breaks, it's her who breaks because she has put everything onto this, this family to succeed and you know, she's sacrificed pretty much everything for her husband's dreams. And then whenever it kind of all goes up in smoke, she's kind of sort of left and, you know, trying to keep this family together. So, yeah, I think that she... I, th I think about her performance the most, I think, actually, out of everyone in the film. That's, well, that's I'm really glad you, you brought her up because she is somebody who's getting less love, particularly with awards, nominations and attention. But she just carries so much of the film and is central to one of the key tensions within the family, which is between the the solid dad figure who for, whose ambition is tangled up in his responsibility towards his family. So he is going to try and get make this farm work because he has a dream for the family in the future. But of course, his ego is also tied up in that as a man. And so Monica, the, the mother character, has to be has to weather that and uh, the, you know the the somewhat trendy term would be emotional labor versus the hard labor of actually digging the trenches for the for the farm but it's a really important part of that and i mean i i, I want to shout out stephen young we've mentioned him on the podcast before because he was amazing in burning a couple of years ago i think at the time i said that he's his performance in burning was one where once you see him on screen you immediately want to punch him uh, but a very different <laughs> character in that film because he's a slick city boy that you're meant to hate. Whereas in this, he is blue jeans, white t-shirt, red baseball cap. He is Bruce Springsteen. He is, you know, at least he is <laughs> trying to be. Um, but again, has that in very knotted kind of 
role to perform of wanting to project a masculinity, almost hitting his head against the wall of a country or the literal land that doesn't want to bend to his will and how that um, personality, that ego is affected by that. And it's such a great breakout role for him. He's been, of course, on in terms of telly and stuff with The Walking Dead. He's He's been on our screens for years, but it's between a couple of key Korean films like Burning an Octure and then, I suppose, Sorry to Bother You a couple of years ago as well. He's now slowly making his way into the A-list, or we hope so. You're, you're a Stephen <laughs> fan, aren't you, Hannah? Yeah, big time. Um, I watched most of uh, The Walking Dead. I think I probably finished... I gave up on it after Stephen Young left, actually. Um, just kind of, it's when it really got bad for me, which maybe is maybe is because um, of Stephen leaving it. I think he was so great on that show, which was a very <laughs> a mixed bag, if ever there was one. Um, and yeah, he's an actor that I think has been consistently um, doing the work when he's given opportunities but he does seem like someone who has been overlooked time and time again by Hollywood and I think a lot of that is probably down to the kind of intrinsic racism and also this very strange relationship Hollywood has with Asian and Asian American actors where they often times kind of do cast them in these very like caricatured roles and I think that Stephen Yun is someone who's always done his level best to avoid any of those roles which is great but must be so frustrating for him when you know he's such a talented performer and to not be given those opportunities but finally it seems like the world is kind of catching up with um, audiences who I think have always kind of known that he's great uh, at whatever he does and the thing I love about him as a performer is he has all these layers to him and he can go from kind of being this goofy guy in um octa or sorry to um sorry to bother you or in um his <laughs> one scene role in um i think you should leave which is the um comedy sketch show on netflix he's in the very first episode of the final sketch if you want to check that out i would highly recommend it um he has a great sense of comedic timing and i believe he actually did kind of train in like improv and comedy acting before kind of moving into dramatic acting so I, I would love to see him as like a, you know, flat out, like romantic comedy lead. I think he would crush it. I think he'd be so good. Um, but then there's also this like sensibility, which we see in Burning and we see in Minari, where he is very good at kind of, uh, how, how, do, how would you describe this? Giving that impression of a man who is holding a lot back and could kind of explode at any moment. And um, I think we see more of that in, Minari than we did in Burning certainly because there's just more of him in Minari um in Burning I think the thing that's fascinating is like I still to this day have conversations with people where we can't decide if he did it or not <laughs> and I I was talking to a friend of the podcast Jake Cunningham about this and he is very firmly in the he didn't do it camp and I'm in the he absolutely did it <laughs> camp but you know that film came out what two three years ago and the fact we're still like debating that is very very kind of testament to how good that film is and how great he is in it um but yeah it's so good to see him get this really meaty role where he gets to kind of be channeling James Dean and that kind of like very raw ideal of like the the um what it means to be a man and kind of what it means to um 
look look after a family and like provide for your family. We talked a lot about James Dean when I spoke to um, the Isaac Chung and when I spoke to Stephen because they both used him as kind of like a model and specifically like East of Eden for Minari and kind of what they wanted to portray. And I think that's such an interesting model because it's not something that a lot of people would associate with an immigrant story. We think of James Dean as like the ideal of like all American, you know, kind of... Um, excellence I guess and um I was really like really interested to hear that he'd been this this model and I think you definitely see that kind of same intensity and it's from I mean I'm very glad that um Stephen Young seems to have such a like head on his shoulders he seems very like very focused and very like not only a wonderful actor but so kind of like in it he's so like you know he thinks so deeply about his roles and about like the craft of acting and it, it's clear that like it means a lot to him this the, his role in this film means a lot and I really I yeah I think he's so remarkable and his chemistry with Alan Kim as well like the way they interact together and kids like you know kids in films can either kind of make it or break it but Alan Kim like this, this being his first role just what what a tiny superstar and when you watch him in interviews, he's absolutely nothing like this character. <laughs> he's so, like, kind of, like, chatty and, like, mischievous and, you know, very, very um, eloquent. And I am kind of, like, blown away by how good he is in this film. I think it's so impressive to be that good that young. Are you a member of the Alan Kim fan club, Katie? Oh, yeah. Big time. Big time. Because <laughs> I think that whenever you maybe first see the trailer for the film, you think that it's going to be, like I did, absolutely devastating, which, you know, it is. But it's also very funny. There's so much humour in it that comes from <laughs> the interactions between um, Alan Kim's character, David, and Sunja, his grandma. You know, he absolutely hates his grandmother for, you know, most of the film. And you say she smells like Korean, you know, there's a lot of going on there. But there's this brilliant moment where he uh, hands her a drink of what you think is Mountain Dew, but it turns out not to be Mountain Dew. And, you know, it's absolutely brilliant. And, yeah, it's, it's, I think that sometimes it's humour maybe gets overlooked and, you know, there's absolutely great um, comedic performances here as well as, you know, great dramatic ones too. Oh, I think that Yoon Yoo-jung, uh, who plays the grandmother, her performance is astonishing. She's somebody who, in terms of Korean cinema, has a career dating back all the way to the 60s. But in terms of maybe, you know, us in the English-speaking world, maybe this might maybe our introduction to her, and she is brilliant in a primarily comedic performance at times as well. That she is this, you know, uh, what the gift she gets out of her her bag immediately for the kids is like a pack of cards, right? Because she wants to teach them how to be good at cards <laughs> and gamble. So she's not the traditional grandma, and that it, you know keys into one of those themes that for the two kids who've grown up in America, they have a very particular cultural image in their head of what a grandma is, and uh, and she very much isn't. But even within that, um, you know, unlikely grandma performance, there is such emotional depth, particularly with the, the relationship that grows between her and the boy, David. But yeah, the, the, the comedy is something... Katie, you're right to pick it up. When I rewatched this film, I picked up a sort of ironic thread that's almost there from the very beginning when they first get to the farm and I think it's in dialogue between Jacob and Monica that where she's saying, really want to c come here? And Jacob's like holding a 
handful of dirt and he says, this is the best dirt in America, which I don't know, may, maybe that's just me with a particularly cynical sense of humor, but that just feels like, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a sense of irony there. But it also is a route into what is so quietly profound about this movie. You know, Hannah, you, you said that we're surprised that somebody as all-American as James Dean could be an influence on this on the performance for Stephen Young as Jacob. But what is more American than this story? About this sort of new frontier spirit, the trying to commune with the land, have a patch of your own, 50 acres of your own. That is the sort of quietly profound but hits like a freight train kind of theme, right? That this is a version of the American dream, whether they are pursuing it and whether they achieve it or not. That's something, there's something very pure about that. Yeah, I also think that it it's so clever, though, because it also completely blows up the American mm. dream and it sort of shows just how hollow it is. And it's, again, like all these competing tensions in this film is what makes it so good because it absolutely is about pursuing this idea that um, Jacob has, but he's also, within that, he, you know, dismisses, um, you know, Paul's help to sort of find the water off this land because he thinks he's like Koreans use their heads they don't use you know and he wants to create a farm full of Korean products not American products to sell to the local community so yeah again there's this tension between you know farming and that sort of labor and that you know James Dean spirit is you know the American dream but at the same time it's kind of this spin and what we're used to mm. I think which makes it yeah really really a fascinating portrayal of that and how you know, it's it does feel like the American dream almost portray, um, betrays Jacob mm. in the film as well whenever you see how it plays out for him and the family. It almost destroys the entire family. It's such a different spin because you think about other genres that put a spin on what the American dream means, particularly immigrant stories like A, a Godfather or A Scarface or Once Upon a Time in America. Mm. It's often that is the American dream curdling into something else. But there's it's through a pure pursuit of the American dream that you discover that it's it's falsity in this film. It's really fascinating. So, Katie, this is your first time on the podcast, so I'm going to put you on the spot here with putting scores on the film. <laughs> so in the tried and tested The White Lies fashion, we have an in anticipation, enjoyment, and in retrospect score out of five. And um, could you have a bash at that for us? Yeah, I'm going all five. Uh-huh. Five, five, five. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, I think that, I mean, to be honest, Lee Isaac Chung is not a director I am overly was overly familiar with. I was aware of some of his work, and particularly his documentary. But I think just coming out of Sundance, the hype was, it was real, and I was worried it wouldn't live up to it. But yeah, I absolutely love this film. It's my favourite film I've seen recently, and I think that I'm, but I'm also worried because I don't want to hype it up too much, you know, and then disappoint other people. <laughs> but I think that, yeah, just I think if you go in, into it with an open mind and an open heart, I think that you'll find a really nuanced, lovely portrait of what it is to sort of, yeah, be a human being, regardless of, you know, you know who you are or what your stance is in life. I think that's, you know what makes it so so great that's beautifully put hannah (laughs) um i'm gonna go four five five just because my anticipation was you know i didn't really know anything about the film going in at sundance but yeah definitely it's one i've not really stopped thinking about and 
as someone with a very short attention span, for that kind of hype to last for over a year for me is is, is uh, pretty rare. And I I just I really think we've become so jaded. I think over the past year we've seen kind of the the worst of humanity, and you know people really. Uh, just when you think in the middle of a pandemic, like people can't think any lower, they continue to surprise and amaze us with ways they can. So to watch a film like this, which is really about um, how humans come together in times of crisis or can come together in times of crisis and kind of work in pursuit of um, each other's like comfort and not necessarily like a greater good in a, grand noble context but just in the the kind of context of like family and acting you know acts of love that we do for one another like bringing over groceries from Korea or you know (laughs) um teaching someone to play like your favorite game all these are all kind of things we see throughout the film which just like remind you kind of how special family is whether it's like your you know your birth family or family you've kind of found for yourself and I think it's just such a tonic in these kind of still fraught times I think it really is a a very special film and I feel very protective over it (laughs) yeah it'll definitely make you want to call your grandma if you're lucky enough to you know still have your grandma with you (laughs) I don't want to seem like I'm undermining those fives by saying I'll give this four 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 but that's I, I will give a reason for that I think that um it is a film that has, and it clearly did with both of you, it can be really devastating and really take hold of you emotionally. However, because it it has a very specific and understated way about it, you could miss, if you, if you just missed that thread, that you could miss the film. And seeing it on the small screen... I'm really feeling very strongly this year about watching some of these big awards contenders, best mm. films of the year on, on at home, on my telly or on a laptop. They're not hitting me in the way that I know a big screen experience would mm. be. So this is a 444 with an expectation that if I can get back in the cinema, this might graduate up. Um, but it is really worth seeing right now because it is one of the best films of the last how long it has been a Hannah 16 months <laughs> since it premiered but I'd go even longer I think it's you know um in terms of like American cinema I think it's like one of the best you know when we do our end of the decade list in nine years time I would expect this to make people's lists I think it's you know it, it is going to stand the test of time it's something so I, I this thing I talked about with Lee like the more specific you go with the story often the kind of wider it ends up opening up it's a very strange like irony that then the more you know the deeper you get into your experience the more likely it is people will kind of find something to um relate to or something that grabs them and I think that because this is set in the past it does kind of it's not going to age in the way that I think a lot of films might so yeah I'm 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 very I, I again would say people should watch it as soon as it comes out. Um but also I'm very hopeful that cinemas will give it a, a second run when we get back open because it does I think just being in the dark, like mm. just kind of enveloped by this film is what uh really makes it, it feels like a hug, you know. <laughs> a no contact hug. I'm just putting a reminder in my phone for uh twenty twenty nine November. Remind <laughs> Hannah. <laughs> Minari needs to be in end of decade. <laughs> I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. If we still have films, then. 
<laughs> Everything will be a Disney Plus. <laughs> God, oh God. <laughs> but anyway, that is Minari, which is available to rent at minari.film from, ooh, from, from 2nd of April. We all strongly recommend you check it out. And also, if you want to afterwards check out the new issue of Little White Lies, you can find out how to order that at lwlies.com. However, before we sign off, let's open things up a little bit. We've just focused on one film this week, so let's give some quickfire recommendations of what we've been watching that maybe people can go and check out if they have seen Minari or aren't interested. Uh, Katie, new guest goes first. What have you been watching and enjoying that you think could brighten our lives right now? Well, I haven't been watching a lot of films, to be honest, because I don't know there's something with my attention span at the moment that just I find the idea of sitting down to watch a two-hour film quite overwhelming <laughs> right now. But what I have discovered is how great the great pottery throwdown is. Um, I think it's been on for a few years now, but I never watched it. And yeah, it's just brilliant. It's just watching a bunch of randoms just trying to make some pots. And sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. The stakes are very, very low, but also at the same time very, very high because it's pottery. So I'd highly recommend that if you want... So yeah, something to sort of escape to because the stakes are so low. Great pottery throwdown. I haven't watched any of it, but I hear there's somebody who is so into pots that they cry nearly every episode. Yeah, that's the judge. He gets so emotional about lines <laughs> that he just will sometimes burst into tears he'll hold up a pot and just start crying which I mean highly relatable <laughs> after watching Great Pottery Throwdown I really walk around my house now picking up pots weeping at their lines um yeah it's brilliant it's yeah just very comforting very wholesome tv mm -hmm. Hannah what have you been watching um, not comforting or wholesome in any way, shape or form, um, but I have been steadily working my way through The Sopranos over the past four months. Uh, I'm now about 15 episodes from the end and it's going to be like a death in the family when, when I get to the end of it. I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm very late to the uh, course, but then I was eight when it started airing. So everyone keeps asking me, why did, why are you only just watching it? And I'm like, I, I was eight. Like, what, did, what do you want from me? Uh, but yeah, no, it turns out it's pretty good. Um, <laughs> as everyone said, it was um, very, very funny. I hadn't kind of prepared myself for how deeply funny the show is. Very slapstick at times. Um, and lots of good movie chat. All the Sopranos are movie heads and never sharp about films. And that I really love. There's kind of all these weird little like tangents it goes off into about like movies that you just don't expect from a show about the mafia in New Jersey. Um, and yeah, I, I, there's lots of it. So, you know, if you're looking for a project, I'd highly recommend. And yeah, go over on Twitter and at me with your uh, favourite Sopranos moments because it's it is again like one of the great joys has been talking to people about it it's it's a show that has such a kind of rich history and if you start now you'll be all caught up in time for the uh prequel film that's coming out in september excellent i've yeah i i, I don't really watch much telly as i said before on this podcast so the soprano has <laughs> completely passed me by maybe i'll maybe i'll go back and watch it that sounds like a good strong enough recommendation <laughs> but one tv series i have been watching and this brings us back into the wholesome sort of area is a series that's just um is an animated series that's just launched on netflix called city of ghosts and it's absolutely wonderful 
It's a kids show, but I've got to query whether kids would really like it. I hope kids would like it. It's about <laughs> a group of kids in Los Angeles who form the Ghost Club and they go and investigate various hauntings around town. And in the process, they explore various neighborhoods of LA and the ghosts represent various communities or um, residents who maybe have been whitewashed, gentrified, or generally sidelined uh, in the history of Los Angeles. So it's got real bite to it, but it's told in such a wonderful, light way, and you get to learn so much. And I would not have expected from an animated Netflix series to be getting my like dose of psychogeography. And after a year <laughs> where I, you know, I live a couple of miles out of London, but we've been locked down and I've been unable to like walk around the big city I love so much, it's so nice to be able to be transported to another city and get a real wonderful taste of it. I'd really recommend that. A City of Ghosts. So not the BAFTA-nominated documentary from a couple of years ago and not the Matt Dillon <laughs> thriller from 2011 or whatever it was, but, but City of Ghosts. <laughs> I'd recommend that. So, listeners, that's plenty of recommendations for you to go away and watch. You could let us know what you think of Minari or any of the other recommendations we've just given you at the usual channels. That's at LWLies on Twitter truthandmovies at tcolondon.com via email or at the comments section at lwlies.com slash podcast. We should be back with another one of these film-specific episodes uh, very shortly. But for now, thank you, Hannah. Thank you, Katie. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> I'm Michael Leader, and thank you for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.